So, the hunt for self-sufficiency in brewing is on, and having found out how my local ancestors would have done it, I'm now focusing on finding the early, primitive sugar source that is honey, as we continue the search for that foraged, homegrown beer. I'm Ben Richards, and this is Growing Beer. Hello and welcome back. I hope you're doing well as you join me for this second episode as we continue in our quest to find out what it takes to brew like those early pioneers of British booze. My challenge this year being to see what we can do with the ingredients that I can find around me, either as a forager, farmer or a member of a small local community, just like we would have done many, many years ago. Our first episode saw award-winning beer writer and historian Martin Cornell guide us through a potted history of brewing in this country and give me a rough idea as to what may have been used in his earliest brews. We covered the main ingredients, general approaches to brewing, and looked at what was drunk over time. And it's on the back of that discussion that in this episode, we'll be exploring our first ingredient, honey, and quite possibly the first British alcoholic drink, mead. I've chosen to look at mead first, as before agriculture arrived on these shores, it is looking likely that there would have been limited sources of sugar available all of those thousands of years ago. We didn't have the same fruits as we do now, and if you're looking for something fermentable, it seems logical that honey would have been your best bet. I expect most of you know that if you ferment honey, you get a very enjoyable alcoholic drink called mead, and some of you may have come across the hybrid of ale and mead that Martin mentioned last time, braggart. And it's both of these drinks that I want to get my head around so that I can find out more about that potential transition for those folks who, thousands of years ago, were making the old drop of mead, and then wham, suddenly, barley and wheat arrive, bringing with them these new and different options. Now, this presents us with our first practical challenges. I'm not sure if I can even get hold of wild honey. I'm not exactly sure how it would have been fermented. And I don't know how that early mead compares to the modern stuff that you and I can buy now. Just this first part about the honey led me to realise that I probably need to get some more advice. As I sat down the other day and tried to work out my options for getting hold of some of that wild honey, I realised that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I mean, I could just head out in search of wild bee colonies and try to gather some honey, but the most likely three outcomes from this approach are all fairly negative. The first outcome is I don't find any because we have to put it simply, devastated bee and insect populations with our attitude to the environment, and there aren't as many wild colonies and populations as there used to be. The second outcome is that I do find one, but I get seriously injured trying to access it, uh, either through a fall or being stung hundreds or thousands of times by quite rightfully angry bees. I can actually see what looks like a hive no more than about 20 or 30 metres from my front door. It's in the eaves of a neighbour's roof, but there's absolutely no way I'm going to try and find any honey on top of their four-storey house. Again, I'd get stung, I'd fall off the ladder, and if by some minor miracle that didn't kill me, the neighbour would quite probably take issue with me pulling chunks out of their roof. And the third outcome is, even if I can find a wild, accessible colony and get some honey out, it is probably not going to end well for those bees, as I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm sure some of them would end up getting killed, and nobody wants to be known as a bee killer. So... All in all, this is a very long-winded way of saying I need someone who can tell me more about mead as well as help me get some of that local honey. Luckily for me, there is a mead maker and beekeeper literally in the next valley, and they were more than happy to share their knowledge with me. Not so luckily, because nothing is going to be easy this year, 
With lockdown kicking in, I wasn't able to make the two-mile trek to pay them a visit when I wanted to. Now, this is a common theme that you'll notice throughout this series, as I've had to wait months to speak to some experts, interview others remotely or online, or, sadly, just accept that some people won't be able to take part due to the impact of recent circumstances. In this case, though, I waited three months and bought some extra-long microphone cables for a socially distanced visit to O'Hagan's Meadery to chat Honey, Mead and Braggart with a man originally from Ireland, but now selling his award-winning Kilner Saget Mead from right here in Devon. So I'm Thomas O'Hagan. I'm a mead maker, a biologist and a beekeeper. And I have a passion for making meads with raw honey and making sort of historical mead styles from around the world. Which sounds absolutely perfect. That's exactly what I want to find out about. (laughs) Well, as you know, I am trying to brew a, uh, as a local would have done um, hundreds or or Mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. And from speaking to previous uh, experts Mm -hmm. in my other interviews, um, I'm pretty sure that honey would have been an option at Mm -hmm. some point in in our history. I agree, yes. Yeah. Um, And maybe not for everybody, Mm -hmm. but certainly used maybe on its own and blended with with barley um, or wheat as Mm -hmm. well. So... What does it take to go from a jar of honey to an alcoholic drink? Very simply, dissolving the jar of honey in some water and leaving it. (laughs) And that is it. And that is why making mead would have been really easy for our Neolithic ancestors. Um, Some honey would have got wet. They would have found a flooded beehive when they'd gone foraging. And they would have found mead. And especially, um, you know, that's that's literally all it, it takes. You, you have some good honey, dissolve it in water, and you can make a perfectly nice mead. Not very strong in alcohol. Um, but, yeah, you take a nice uh, raw honey that's not been filtered or processed. There's lots of wild yeast and bacteria uh, in the honey. And if that uh, honey has been, has been is maybe a year old, the bacteria and yeast that are dormant and still surviving in that honey, quite like honey, the ones that survive... Uh, in it are you know they will ferment quite well you dissolve the honey and water they come back to life and yeah they will happily make you a nice mead all on their own yeah wow so it really can be quite a straightforward process Mm -hmm. so how does that differ then from what you do as a commercial mead maker are there any other steps that you put in place or things you do slightly differently yeah well as a commercial mead maker um you know that isn't you know it's not very reliable you're not going to get a very stable product at the end um, if you want, you can get a stable mead at the end, but it has to be quite sweet. You know, quite a lot of heavy honey in it to keep it stable. Um, so, uh, yeah, you only, you're not going to get more than five or six percent alcohol. Uh, for commercial mead, you know, for making a a dessert wine style mead, you're looking at a commercial yeast that's been selectively isolated, that's going to ferment to you know fourteen, fifteen percent. Um, you're looking and then when you start going up to that uh, level of alcohol then you're really worried about nutrients that the yeast need that aren't in the honey when there's not when you're making quite a low alcohol mead you're not so worried about that using wild yeast it, it it's fine but using a commercial wine yeast there's not enough nitrogen for in the honey for the commercial wine yeast they they're really nitrogen hungry microorganisms when you're making a, a stronger mead with a commercial yeast and yeah you have to give them nutrients you have to give them the vitamin packs and that's where a lot of people would say oh i made a mead 
but I had to age it for three years before I could drink it. Yeah. Is just um the yeast were just starved of nutrients. It's imagine you just living on white bread. You'll have lots of energy, but you're going to die. You know, yeah, like it's yeah, you're gonna be starved, you're gonna get scurvy, you know. Yeah. So going back to those um ancient meats, mm-hmm. what's the sort of rough or potted history of, of mead making in, in this country? Um well it's it's prehistory. So I think with um with most countries and this country's no exception, the mead was around before mythology was was sort of established and codified. And it's the earliest records of mead are in mythology that was, you know, part of the oral history. And it's in, you know, our our Norse gods that we had here, that the Anglo Saxon gods like Woden, um, you know, in in Celtic mythology. There was, the, there was always the practice of giving um, a newlywed couple a month's supply of mead and sending them off for a month. You know, that's where the honeymoon comes from. Um, you know, I didn't know that. That's... It's honey for a moon's length of time, and they were sent off for a month to make the next generation of the tribe. Um, and, you know, and a lot of it is all is all prehistory. And, um, you know, when the Romans came here you know mead was was everywhere they sort of recorded it but it, it's not really i stand to be right but it's not really known exactly when the first uh, meads were made here but it's something that hunter gatherers would have found in the wild they would have found mead they would have found flooded beehives and found mead so yeah, yeah. I, I don't really know this is an answer <laughs> of when mead started but a very long time ago yeah, yeah. i love that honeymoon thing that's mm. my wedding gift now from now on it's just a yeah. massive bottle of mead yeah <laughs> that's exactly what i give people when they get married to get yeah. a case of mead off me <laughs> i love it that's really yeah. cool um so probably the brew of yours that stands out at the moment um from my perspective mm-hmm. at least is that half mead half beer yes yeah braggot. yeah yeah for a couple of years i've been making braggot crossovers yeah and um yeah i think it's it's a really nice style of beer yeah. um but you can make a, a stronger beer that's quite light and easy drinking mm-hmm. um you know most stronger beers aren't easy drinking but yeah. if you make a, a strong braggot um you know an 11 12 percent if you've got maybe six percent of that alcohol coming from malted grains and the rest from honey that's a very nice easy drinking style that reminds me of well some of the belgian styles like belgian triples mm. where they put mm. they put sugar in basically mm. to up yeah. the alcohol without upping the body or upping too much flavor yeah yeah and if you do that with honey it's going to be nicer because putting sugar in doesn't make a you know doesn't add anything really other than just alcohol but if you add if you use honey instead you know it's a subtle flavor you know it can be quite lost yeah uh, against the malt flavors but you know it's it's yeah subtle and nice yeah mm. and when you make uh, a braggot, mm-hmm. does it start off as a beer? You add honey into it, or is it the other way around? Um, well, lots of people do different things. The way I find is, is best is you add um, honey in at the start. You know, once you've got your um, your wort cooled, you know you don't want to add honey straight into uh, wort before you've cooled it because you're going to damage the honey. But um, you know, once your wort's down around thirty degrees or so, you can start adding. Uh, your honey to it and that'll even speed up the cooling uh, and you don't want to put too much honey in at the start because you know most beer yeast aren't going to tolerate you know if you're making a stronger braggot with lots of honey they're not going to tolerate all that honey straight away so i tend to add the honey in stages throughout the, the fermentation and um, lots of people do different things some people will ferment the the wort just the malt on its own entirely 
then they'll come along you know when it's activity starting to die down they'll add a a different yeast and add honey in at that point and that can create a a, a nice style um yeah so it's 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 really flexible and it all creates uh, different styles and different flavors so i've got options mm-hmm. yeah good yeah. That's, that's, i like it when i speak to somebody and there's lots of ways of doing it yeah. rather than just one you have to stick to yeah and i suppose going back to early brewers or makers of mead mm-hmm. um they would have just done what they needed to do at the time with what they've got yeah there was no fixed way mm-hmm. of doing it i suppose yeah would have whatever ingredients they had to hand and i think it's the there's a sumerian tablet mm-hmm. um that records um you know braggart and there's literally this recording some of their uh, brews was literally everything they had that was fermentable uh, and i think there was a modern companies actually recreated this i think yeah i think uh, so yeah yeah, yeah. Right, and, yeah but i think it's a really good example it's you know they just everything that they have was fermentable grapes barley honey everything just went in you know yeah. and what yeah. came out came out yeah yeah, yeah. perfect now um if if i'm brewing with malted barley mm-hmm. um there's a pretty good chance that if using just wild local yeasts mm-hmm. for a beer at least you'll end up with a fair number of bacteria in there as well um and certainly in my experience that can lead to a lot more acid than alcohol and it's yeah. a very hit and miss mm-hmm. uh process sometimes does bacteria play a role in in mead as well yes um you know with um yeah with making mead wild mead wild yeast mead you're going to have a lot of acid producing bacteria a lot of the ones that you'd would be in there if you were intentionally making a, a sour beer you know a lot of those acid producing bacteria are going to be in there naturally and i think that works better in braggots and meads than it does in beers because if you have the sweetness from the honey balancing that acidity mm-hmm. you know that acidity then instead of being a fault becomes quite desirable mm-hmm. yeah and does the honey have any uh preservative effects to counter yeah. that as well it does yeah so um i'm sure this was something neolithic brewers did without really know uh wild braggots that uh, you've added honey to um they have a much higher success rate uh, they don't um they don't go bad as often you know the honey has a protective effect um you know by supplying the honey inoculates a certain amount of good bacteria that's been surviving in the honey and i'm not sure of the exact science of how it protects it but they're a lot less resistant to oxidation in my in my experience, uh, or a lot more resistant to oxidation. Sorry, that's all right. <laughs> and um, and yeah, just by trial and error, I find if there's honey in a in a wild yeast braggot or beer, um, yeah, it doesn't tend to go bad as often. Because it's starting to sound to me that as well as having honey as a sugar source, mm-hmm. I should really be using it and including it now to help prolong the life of that that beer as well. Uh, I'm biased uh, from my background, <laughs> but yes, I think so. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of Neolithic brewers would have done that. You know, some of the, the the grains that you've been foraging and using, you know, they're not they, um, you know, would have been difficult to make a a strong, stable beer with those back in the day. You know, when they had very limited equipment, uh, and you know, I imagine a lot of brews were supplemented with honey to you know increase the alcohol percentage and uh, and make a more stable beer yeah it makes mm. sense doesn't it yeah uh, now you don't just make standard mead you use a lot of local ingredients that you collect yourself as well if i'm yes. right yeah what are the recent additions that you've been using uh well elderflower is really popular at the at the minute um 
I've been experimenting with using um, pineapple weed. It's like a wild chamomile that you might yeah. see growing around. Yep. Um, and this year, hopefully, I am going to um, make a braggot with lots of uh, yarrow and meadowsweet in it. It's, it's interesting that you say yarrow and meadowsweet because mm-hmm. those have come up as two classic yeah. preserving, mm-hmm. flavouring plants that were yeah. used in early mm-hmm. brewing as well. And mm-hmm. they're two right at the top of my list. Do you think that people would have just gone out for a wander, gathered some honey and, and whatever herbs were available at that time of the year to blend together to make their drink? Yeah, I think people hadn't got the luxury of, you know, sitting on the internet and looking at what combinations work really well for other people, then going out and specifically looking for a certain herb or berry or honey and walking past other ones because it wasn't on their, on their shopping list for the day. When you know, people would have, out, would have picked everything that yeah. they could have could have found and they would have sorted it out when they got back and figured out what was going to work. You know, you know, with the advent of farming, then, you know, people would have been more selective, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah. But, you know, this is all just my opinion and conjecture. You know, there's no evidence of this, but, you know. But then where we are at the moment is a very rural, admittedly very lovely part of the world with a yeah. lot of wild food growing. Yeah. And that's exactly what, what you're doing, what I'm going to be doing this summer as yeah. well, is just getting what I can and figuring out the best way of making a drink come the end of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, it would probably be rude to talk about mead and braggart and honey without giving some credit to, to the bees. Of course. Um, and yeah. you keep your own. I do keep my own. Uh, I don't make enough honey for all that I, I do. So I buy in lots of other honey. But yeah, I have my bees. I try and treat them in a chemical-free fashion. And I don't do anything to the honey when it comes out. You know, just chuck it all in, bits of beeswax and everything. And I think that's the best way to, to make mead. Yeah. I've started experimenting with a, a warrior hive. Okay. Um, it's a sort of a, a more low intervention style of, of beekeeping. It was developed by a French monk, actually. Yeah. I think he, yeah, he was a French monk. And, but with this system, the boxes are quite small and you don't ever actually get inside the boxes and poke around and see what the bees are doing, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you f- see a problem, you can fix it. But without a doubt, you're you're damaging them in some way or another they're losing heat yeah you're exposing them to the environment and um, but this system then you just keep adding boxes on the bottom mm-hmm. and the bees keep moving down so oh, if you okay. imagine a column of boxes yeah and the bees make their nest at the bottom the brood at the yep. bottom of it yeah and they'll store honey at the top yep uh, bees do what they want but that's sort of a general <laughs> uh rule uh, yep. and as you keep adding boxes to the bottom the bees gradually move their nest down ah, and then yeah. store honey at the top and then you can take boxes off the top when they're full of honey yeah and you sort of work in a, in a in a cycle yeah and you don't really have any way of controlling swarming yeah uh, so yeah it's one of the reasons beekeepers like myself were always poking inside uh inside the hives is we're looking to see if the bees are about to in the spring are about to say right we're going to split off and mm-hmm. reproduce and make two colonies we're going to raise a new queen yep. and the old queen is going to fly off you can't really control that. You want to take advantage of that, I guess, don't you? Yeah. So if you if you see signs of swarming, mm-hmm. you artificially swarm them. You say, mm-hmm. okay, these bees naturally want to swarm. That's their instinct. They want to reproduce. You split the colony in half and you do it for them. And then you still get to keep both hives. And then yeah. their natural instinct is, uh, is um, you know, is they get to express it. Some mm-hmm. people like do things like clipping wings of bees and trying to trap the queen and stuff. But I, I think the bees are happier if you let them yeah swarm but if you can do it for them then you get to keep all the bees and keep yeah. all the honey and you don't have any colonies appearing in people's chimneys 
yeah we've had that with a neighbor yeah yeah <laughs> every year there's a massive swarm coming out of their chimney yeah it's it's almost the, the noise is really surprising actually mm. when there's that many bees moving overhead out of the mm. chimney and they move on it's quite yeah. exciting at the same time yeah you'll be putting the washing out or something in the garden mm. and you'll turn around and suddenly everything's covered in bees yeah and that's the same that's a really healthy amazing colony that's living in there they've probably been there for years and mm. you know every year they're splitting off and the old queen is leaving and they're raising a new one mm. and they start a new lovely wild colony of bees somewhere and I think yeah. it's wonderful yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. lovely however of course, that hasn't always been the way. We haven't had domesticated bees. No. When did we start domesticating bees and using hives like that? Well, it's really a, a, a late Victorian thing, is in the modern hive with movable frames. You can move the frames out and inspect them. You can, um, you know, put a, a queen excluder in the middle of the hive so the, the larvae and the, the capped brood are all at the bottom and you only have nice clean honey at the top. You know, that's all, uh, you know, late, ni- uh, late 19th century. I might stand to be corrected on that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's Certainly sort of the recent. era. It's a recent event. Um, before that, you would have had a lot of people, um, you know, using the, the wicker uh, hives, mm-hmm. skeps. And, you know, and, a, and there is sort of ways you can get honey out of skeps without damaging the bees. But there would have been a, a point between wild beehives and our modern systems where the only way to harvest the honey was to drown the bees mm-hmm. and this happened quite a lot wow um people would have just picked up the hive and drowned it and that was how they got the the honey off it and you know the bee populations were much healthier back in the day there was a lot more wild colonies mm-hmm. then moving into yeah. uh straw skeps you know so it wasn't a big problem then yeah eventually i guess it has become a problem yeah. um but yeah, you would have drowned it, and that is where a lot of cheap mead would have come from. Where the mead for the poor people would have come from would have been the water that the, was used to drown the bees in. Oh, okay. Um, and it, there wouldn't have been a lot. So, if you drown a beehive and then you take out the comb, you're gonna because the honey's capped, you're gonna get most of the honey out. But you're gonna have bits of broken comb. You're gonna have honey that wasn't capped yet, and that's gonna dissolve into the water. You're going to have lots of beeswax and bees and crud and everything. But all that crud is adds flavour. Yeah. Yeah. So you would have had a cheap, small mead for people who couldn't really afford the more expensive stuff. So you would have had almost like a class division in mead. And then because that honey you drown the beehives in, yeah, uh, you can ferment that. You yeah. get a week, a week mead off that. Yeah. And as long as, you stra- as long as you strain out the dead bees, it'll be quite palatable. Which parallels brewing to some extent as well in that you have different runnings off yeah. of a mash mm-hmm. one much weaker than maybe the main beer that you're, you're trying to exactly, make exactly yeah, yeah. Ah. and going one step beyond that kind of uh half domesticated or the wicker mm-hmm. hives yeah when uh people were using purely wild honey mm-hmm. would that have been like a smash and grab affair it would have been yeah the hive yeah. the colony wouldn't have been killed necessarily but it would have been yeah smash and grab yeah um leg it before you get stung too badly yeah um <laughs> And I imagine there would have been an amount of colony death as well because, you know, a colony's hidden in a tree and there's a tiny little hole. Yeah, you're going to have to smash it open. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them you might be able to get in without doing a huge amount of damage. Yeah. There is an intermediate point, I guess, where people would have um, came to the to the tree, say this tree, and had a nice big hole rotted in the middle by a fungus and a hive had moved, colony had moved in and you could have almost put like a removable hatch on it and taken that hatch off and then harvested some honey mm-hmm. and put the hatch back on and tried not to get too badly stung. Yep. 
and there would have been a, a time as well where people were taking natural holes in trees like this were making a hatch and then hoping bees would move in when bees were a lot more populated mm-hmm. you know it would have been quite likely bees would have moved into this so someone would have found this before the bees moved in and, and was going to sting everyone um, yeah there would have been a hatch put on it and then mm-hmm. you know your beekeeper would have come along and opened up the hatch grabbed a few combs of honey closed it up and legged it and yeah. that would have been a, <laughs> a job and I think in a lot of um, big country estates at one point in history you know there were professional beekeepers hired you know along with other people to that looked after the the landlord's animals and a lot of those would have been in, in trees that they would have went and mm-hmm. nabbed a little bit of honey from so there yeah. is yeah there is um you know it wasn't all destruction but yeah 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 so what are the big challenges now as a beekeeper um varroa mites is is one um the varroa destructor mites that live on the bees the parasite that can damage them um it's maybe not as big a problem as it was a couple of years ago. There's been some management solutions for that. Um, having a the bottom of the hive being a, a mesh, so when the mites fall off the bees, they can't land on the floor and climb back up. They fall through the mesh. And uh, there's lots of bee diseases and lots of um, unknown reasons why colonies are dying. I think the rate of colonies dying is um, is a lot higher than it used to be, and that's challenging. It um, pushes up the price of honey because you have to account for hives that didn't make it through the winter um and a lot of it isn't really a lot of the reasons aren't known for this you know i think in america colony collapse disorder is a is a massive problem and no one really you know there's no exact cause has been pinned down for it but one thing that maybe is different between here and america is that we treat our bees a lot less uh, a lot more chemical free hives here and natural selection is allowed to f- happen a bit more so there is a theory that a lot of the problems with modern beekeeping is that we've removed natural selection so colonies that should have died have gone on to reproduce uh you know ones that are susceptible to mites and, and disease or maybe not it's only a theory but there's a lot more beehives die- dying um another main problem is habitat loss um you know there's just a lot less wildflowers you know, you you think of the the countryside, and you think it's going to be great for bees, but if you look at how you know the the reduction in hedgerows over the last couple of hundred years, it's almost like a big green desert of grass. You know, the bees don't have anything there. You know, the fact that people living in London can get bigger yields out of their hives than people living in agricultural grazing land. You know, because of people's gardens, uh, and that that's a big problem. And a lot of successful beekeeping operations are. Um, are putting their bees on monocultures just like lots of oilseed rape um, and you know there's nothing that's brilliant that the bees are able to live on that and I quite like oilseed rape honey um, but you know it's not it's not maybe ideal you know it's a massive burst of energy coming into the hive when the oilseed rape is in season and then it dies off you know and then you can move the hives as well but you know a lot of it isn't isn't quite natural you know and it's mm. it's a challenge yeah. yeah habitat loss is is definitely a big challenge yeah mm-hmm. so the honey that is produced locally using uh, as much of the wild mm-hmm. plants and, and lands we can it is really quite valuable it is yes yeah yeah and it's really valuable for um for pollination as well mm-hmm. you know because with um insect loss in our natural environment 
um, having some domesticated pollinators can make quite a big difference. So there is a similarity or a, a, a parallel between the importance of that honey, you know, hundreds or thousands of years mm -hmm. ago and the effort you have to go to, to get it. Mm -hmm. It's still really important now and it still needs a lot of effort to make sure we keep getting the honey we need. It does, yeah, and it is quite challenging. And a lot of honey that's made in the in the UK is made by people that aren't making any profit off it. You know, the what they're selling the honey for, they're selling it's really expensive to sell it, but it still doesn't quite cover all the costs of, of doing it. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how other countries can make the honey a lot cheaper. But, um, but yeah, a lot of beekeepers are just doing it for the love of it and doing it for, you know, for nature and that. And I don't really, I can't think, I don't, I can't, I don't even know exactly why um, we're not able to make a profit from it. But, yeah, it, it is, it is a challenge and people are just doing it for the love of it. Yeah, mm. yeah, which is wonderful. But also, if people aren't fully aware of the difference between their local or regionally made honey mm. and the value that those bees yeah. have mm -hmm. in the environment, mm -hmm. um, perhaps they're not fully appreciating why it costs what it costs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on and, and taking us back to what I need to do. Yes. Um, if I'm going to brew a braggot or a mead, what would your advice for me be? Are there any tips, things to do, things not to do? Um make sure the honey is raw and unfiltered um, and that is where you're going to have the most flavour. One way to test this wherever you get your honey from uh, whether it be from a, a nice local beekeeper or a, a supplier that's promising you that it's uh, nice uh, good quality honey is take a little bit of it mix it with some water say 200 grams in a pint of water maybe and just try seeds of ferment on its own without any um, additional support from you if it ferments then it's good quality raw honey and that would be one test before you put it in your uh, use it in your beer um, if you're adding your honey when you're adding your honey at the at the start make sure the wort has cooled definitely below body temperature you know that would be a good rule of thumb if you put it in hot you're going to damage your honey Um and you have to be quite a careful balance between the amount of malt and the amount of honey. I find a good rule is um, 50% malt, 50% honey is a good starting point. But it's, you know, this is going to be a new recipe. We're not sure exactly how it's going to taste. Um, so it's quite maybe set up a couple of trial batches, maybe one with like a third malts, two thirds honey, you know, two thirds honey, a third malt, 50%. You know, and then just sort of see what is uh, is going to work. You know, with your particular uh, recipe. Yeah, just yeah. take it from there. Yeah, yeah. you know, because it, you know, you can go. Um, you know, you'd make something. Yeah, this is a really nice final product, but maybe you've gone too much honey, not enough malt, and the flavors don't quite work. It's quite a fine balancing act to get the the flavors of the malt and and honey to kind of balance nicely. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully, you can have some fun experimenting. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you know, I think that is. That's been really useful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really set me on the road to making my mead and yeah. my braggart. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. <laughs> very kind of Thomas to give up some of his time and very lovely mead there. And it looks like it may actually be quite straightforward to make a basic mead. Get honey, add water, wait. 
the tricky bit is going to be getting that honey still. Now, it's quite clear I'm not going to go out and find a wild colony, partly because it sounds dangerous, but also because having spoken to Thomas, it is just not appropriate to risk the health of the bees should I even find some. They are under such pressure at the moment that they don't need me adding to their problems. Instead, I'm going to have to do what peasant Ben would have done and try to get somebody else to do it for me. In this case, a local beekeeper. Thomas only has enough honey for his mead at the moment, but he has put me in touch with another beekeeper who does have some spare that they will happily sell to me, so I got myself a few jars of this with which to try and make my simple mead. It's a honey that Thomas himself has also used in making mead, and he's stressed that it's really important that we use unprocessed raw honey like this. We're after all of those microbial yeasts that would naturally be found in it, so heat treating or pasteurisation are definitely not wanted, and chemical treatments are a big, big no. It's got to be as natural as it would have been where we're finding it in the wild. As well as helping me to track down some honey, Thomas's recommendation for a braggart that is half honey and half barley is also a great starting point as I begin to plan that final beer. And I'm really interested to see if that natural yeast in the honey could even play a role on the ultimate fermentation. So anyway, back to the now. I have made up a test batch of literally just honey and water. I heated up the water to remove anything in there that shouldn't be. I let it cool down to just under 30 degrees Celsius and I've now just mixed in the honey. It feels uh, too simple and easy if I'm honest, but hopefully it is now about to start fermenting away in a corner of my house. And by the time we next meet, I'll have learned just how easy it is to make that mead. Crucially, by then, I'll have also explored the next step on our brewing odyssey. Barley, ale, how those earliest of farmers and brewers dealt with the challenge, and what I'm going to need to do to have any hope of having something to drink this Christmas. Now, something tells me it's not going to be as simple as adding water and waiting, but that is a conversation for next time. If you want to find out more about Thomas, Honey and Mead, there's links and details on the beerwithben.co.uk website, or there are the photos that relate to this episode on the social, whilst obviously sharing, rating and saying hi for this podcast are all very, very much appreciated. So I hope you join me next time. Look after yourself. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.